Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to another social distancing episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. This episode is another online event that we staged in our series, Coronavirus, Your Questions Answered. And this one was Coronavirus and the Stats. And in this conversation, we had a star cast of statisticians and experts on the coronavirus pandemic. We had the eminent statistician David Spiegelhalter. We had the biometrics expert Sheila Bird and the American scientist John Ioannidis in a conversation chaired by Anne McElvoy of The Economist. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you do, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts because it helps others to find the show and it lets us know what you think. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you very much, uh, Chris, and welcome to you all. Well, this is the fifth in the Intelligence Squared series of online events, Coronavirus, Your Questions Answered. And in previous weeks, we've examined coronavirus in relation to health, in relation to the economy and to politics. So this week, we thought we would turn attention to the all-important matter of data, how we interpret them. And we're going to be asking how reliable data is on coronavirus cases and what we're being given and what we might find behind it. For example, what are excess deaths? Perhaps a concept many of us weren't really familiar with until the virus hit. The fatalities that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for coronavirus. Are they significant enough to justify the lockdown that we're all enduring? Or comparisons between different countries. We see them every evening on our television screens, on our radios, in the newspapers. But how reliable are they, given the data that we have and that we don't have yet? Well, to discuss the questions, we brought together a panel of leading experts. So I'm just going to introduce them to you before we get underway. We have David Spiegelhalter, who's chair of the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication in the Statistical Laboratory at the University of Cambridge. His most recent book is the best-selling The Art of Statistics, a guide through the essential principles we need to derive knowledge from data. David, you might say your time has come. Sheila Bird is Honorary Professor at the University of Edinburgh and former Programme Leader at the Medical Research Council Biostatistics Unit at Cambridge, where she's also a visiting fellow. Hello, Sheila. And Johnny Oneidas is Professor of Medicine and Professor of Epidemiology and Population Health at Stanford University School of Medicine, where he also specialises in biomedical data. And we're going to start with David and a fairly basic question, but I think it's a building block for what's going to follow, which is what is the most important statistic that we need to understand to be able to grasp the coronavirus pandemic? Oh, dear, that's difficult. I I think I know the the statistic I'd most like to know, which is just how many people have got it. 
or maybe just how many people have had it. And as I'm sure we'll uh, find out later in the proceedings, that is the one number we don't know, unfortunately. So um, I will, I'm sure we'll talk about the imperfections of all sorts of, of all sorts of data. But I'm afraid in the end, the statistic I watch most closely is how many deaths there are. And I don't just mean the numbers that we hear on the news every night. Could you just help us a bit with this definition of excess deaths? And I know that there's been some debate around that, and I think it's become a term that we just read about much more than, of course, than we ever did before the virus. So I suppose we're talking about deaths that would not otherwise have occurred. But how well do we understand that difference? David, well, just stay with you for a minute. Yeah, OK, let's just look at um, the data that was just released on Tuesday by the Office for National Statistics for England and Wales. And that was reporting deaths registered in the week ending April the 10th, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, normally um, about 10,500 people would have been expected to die in that week between March and April. That's the average over the last five years. However, 18,500 people died. And so that 8,000 difference is an excess and this isn't just random chance this is a massive massive spike that hasn't been seen for uh, you know a very long time this is an extraordinary um, 80 percent increase in the number we would expect now that excess of course is a very subtle issue because who are these people and um, we know that 6200 of them were labeled as covid deaths on the death certificate or suspected COVID. So, so, but that accounts then for a lot of those. But there is another nearly 2,000, and it was even more the week before, uh, that were that we wouldn't have expected to die normally, um, but did, and didn't have COVID on the death certificate. And this, exploring that figure and how it's distributed around the different places where people are, are dying is uh, the current sort of detected story, I think, that many of us are fascinated by. And so, John, obviously the examples in terms of the, the numbers there that we just heard from David were UK-specific. You're working more in the American context, but of course you look at it uh, globally as well. Do you kind of agree with that broad outline of what we're able to deduce from getting a raw number called excess deaths? So uh, clearly there's a problem and clearly there's uh, excess deaths. Uh, there's no doubt about this. I mean, this is not a hoax. Uh, however, it's very difficult to estimate the exact number because the mortality curves every winter, they go up and they don't go up by the same amount every winter. If you, if you look at different years, sometimes they're worse, sometimes they're better. Uh, so we have some excess deaths some winters and we have a deficit of deaths in other times. What, what we know also is that if you look at the more mature data where the epidemic wave has already been going down, like Italy, and we, we have taken a closer look at who are these people who are dying. On average, they're about 80 years old. Uh, on average, they have close to three other reasons to die. Uh, and we also know, for example, in Italy, that uh, preceding the spike of coronavirus, there were three months that were a very good year for Italy. So uh, lots of people who typically die, they did not die for these three months. So there was a deficit of deaths, which means that there was a number of very susceptible individuals uh, available, in a sense, for coronavirus to kill. Um, we also need to get a perspective on how many person years are lost. I mean, it makes a huge difference, uh, even though each death uh, is a tragedy and we should avoid it. If uh, we have a 20-year-old person dying versus uh, an 85-year-old uh, with, uh, with uh, multiple other diseases and very short life expectancy. 
And the data so far seem to suggest a very steep gradient of age and disease severity in the background, which means that the, the deaths are giving an inflated picture of uh, the number of person years lost by these deaths. Would you say then that, that the case fatality rate could easily be exaggerated, even allowing for, for what you've described? Because that, that seems to me the layman might conclude that. And of course, as you say, there are sensitivities about we're discussing human life here. But is that, is that the way your argument would lead you, just so I'm clear about that? Uh, of course. Uh, the case fatality rate until uh, recently, uh, what was uh, circulating was based on just dividing numbers of deaths uh, by the number of documented infections. And, and of course, the original message by the WHO uh, sounding the alarm, 3.5% uh, of people uh, die. And, and, you know, hearing this, this is like an asteroid hitting us. You need to go into lockdown immediately. There's no doubt about that. And we realize that we're missing infections because people don't get tested. So that was decreased to like 1% instead of 3.4%, 0.9% in some of the Imperial College calculations. Based on the, the data that we are getting now, it seems to be much, much, much lower. So the, the seroprevalence studies, universal screening studies in, in some settings like uh, delivery, uh, women who are delivering in New York City, 15% uh, of them were, were positive by PCR. This morning, uh, Governor Cuomo in New York said that 21% plus of uh, New York has been infected, New York City, 14% uh, across the state. If, if you correct for the number of infected people, the infection fatality rate drops to much, much lower numbers. In locations that deal with the virus effectively, they don't have their hospitals crash, it may almost be close to influenza levels. In hospitals that crash, it would be much higher, but still not that 3.4% or even that 1%. Just leave that there, John, just while we hear for, from, from Sheila to keep this flowing a bit. But that was, that was really interesting. I don't know. I, I, first of all, Sheila, what's your response to that? And then I want to come on to something which I know that you've worked on, which is the concept of herd immunity. But you, would you like to respond to anything you've heard? Well, yes, I'd like to draw attention to the fact that there is no mistaking in the reports in the United Kingdom, both from the Office for National Statistics and national records for Scotland, that we are dealing with a pandemic. So that Scotland's figures indicate just how steeply the COVID mentioned deaths, and there they do include deaths in, in um, uh, care homes and so on, they increased from around 60, well, 10 first of all, then 60, so a six times multiplier from one week to the next, then 280, four and a half, times as many, then up to 610, about uh, 2.4 times as many. And in the most recent week in Scotland, uh, 650 deaths. So, you know, just 10% increase. So we are cresting, which I think is, is very important. Also, the comparison that David and, uh, and, and I would be making against so-called sort of expected deaths is based on the five, you know, the number of deaths we would have expected in that particular week over the past five years. And as David said, the excesses that we are seeing are no way explicable by chance or, or any such thing. And in both in Scotland and in England and Wales, over two thirds of those additional deaths are COVID mentioned deaths. 
What about the concept of herd immunity? I just wanted to get that out of the way. I'm going to come back perhaps to implications from the data of how we deal with COVID, because I'm sure there's a lot of interest I can see there is already from our audience um, about that. But I just want to clear up this one other phrase, which I suppose just floated around, particularly the beginning of the outbreak and the hope that herd immunity might be achievable. Uh, Some experts still arguing uh, that that's what we should be aiming for. We don't hear so much, at least from the British government, about it anymore, and that's protecting the old and vulnerable only, and the herd immunity then builds up. Are you convinced by that as a model, Sheila? Uh, No, the concern here with this coronavirus is that even if you develop antibodies after you've been infected, they don't last for very long. And so that you may be vulnerable again in a year's time, uh, just as we can get uh, a common cold from year to year. And so there is real concern about the potential for reinfection. So it's been a bit of a red herring, the whole argument about herd immunity. Am I understanding that right? Well, it could be. Uh, I think, you know, the science isn't sorted out yet. And... and, uh, we're about to embark upon studies in the United Kingdom, and, and I'm sure there are corresponding studies in the States that John will know about, where um, we try assess whether somebody who has had, who's known to have had the virus because they tested positive for it, uh, whether they actually develop antibodies, and if they do, how long those antibodies last, because we don't really know the answers to those questions as yet. Let's turn to the impact that all of this is having. And I'm sorry, I'm sure there are other things that you'd like to sort of feed into the the debate, uh, all of you. So please feel free to do so as we go along. I just wanted to point us perhaps to something that must be on all our our minds. Uh, You're all speaking from lockdown. It is very, very widespread. Does the data that we have about how fast coronavirus spreads justify the extremity of social distancing and lockdown that governments have put in place? My family argue about this every night at the supper table. I don't think we're alone. David, back to you. Well, it would have been an interesting experiment not to have bothered. Uh, It's not one I don't think I think I would have wanted to be part of. Um, I mean, Mm. Belarus are trying it. I mean, it's very good of them to volunteer as a control group so we can see what what's going to happen to them. And of course, I mean, everyone's looking at Sweden, which has taken a more relaxed viewpoint. But Sweden, it is very different the way people live and the the amount of interaction people have in the space and things like that. So it's very difficult to make simplistic comparisons between countries, I I think. Um, And uh, I I would love to know. And I'm not going to say, yeah, absolutely, we had to to have this lockdown in order to uh, produce the undoubted um, peak and then downward uh, situation that we're in, in, certainly in UK hospitals now. It's still not quite clear what's going on in the community and care homes. Um, And uh, and I'm not going to say very strongly, yes, we definitely need it. If we believe what the models say, and things like that, then absolutely we did need that restriction to bring the R0, the number of people on average that anyone was infecting, down below one, which it seems to be now. Um, and, so how um, would we know how to get out of it or when to get out of it? 
Oh, well, I think um, that, again, depends on many assumptions and knowledge about about what might happen uh, when we start opening it up again. Um, Obviously, you have to, the first thing you have to make sure is that your health service has you know, is able to cope, which ours has done, which is a remarkable achievement, I think. You have to make sure that the, um, in a sense, there's a wane in terms of the, the number of uh, fatalities, certainly, but even in terms of the number of infections. You've got to know what's going on, you know, which we still don't know, as, as we've been saying, you know, how many people in the community have got it um, and, who's got, and who's got it and in what areas. Um, and so, and you've got to, you, and you've got to have in place um, uh, the, uh, the procedures that are going to take the place of this severe lockdown, which absolutely should be done for a minimum time. When I think of when you think of the amount of people are enduring, the the, the pain that especially young people are going to have to suffer in the future in terms of their prospects, you know, this is something that should be, I think, kept to an absolute minimum. But let me find out what, what the others think about that. Hmm. Uh, I want to hear from from John when you're uh, Stanford lockdown whether you're also thinking it's worth it. But I think you also had a, a point that refers back to what Sheila was talking about, herd immunity. If we just do, do them fairly briefly at this point so we could, could move along, I'd be, be grateful. But off you go, John. Sure. I, I think that these two uh, issues are related. Uh, I mean, clearly, when we made the decisions uh, for lockdown and shelter-in-place orders, they were fully justified because the numbers uh, and the predictions were such that there was really no other option. So, so perfectly sound decision. I think based on the numbers that we have now that suggest a a vastly lower infection fatality rate uh, and something that is spreading very widely and something that is very unclear if lockdown can really stop. Um, You know, lockdown may not necessarily have been the best idea. And of course, we need to go very slowly and with data if we try to move out of it. To, To give you an example, lockdown in theory would mean that everyone is freezing in place and everyone is more than six feet apart and we're a little bit like pawns uh, or like robots that we can freeze and not move around but in practice this doesn't happen even with lockdown a sizable amount of uh, the population is moving around they need to work uh, you know essential uh, type of work that all of us depend on uh, we all go out for shopping we all uh, you know have our families in some places there's intergenerational families many people staying together We have homeless people, people in shelters that now we know they're massively infected by telling them to just stay inside. So lockdown is not really lockdown. Uh, If if we were robots, then it would have worked. The way that we are, we are humans, I'm not really sure it works. So I I fully agree with David that you cannot compare Sweden against other countries. You know, Norway is even more sparsely populated. Can you compare it against Switzerland? Who knows? Uh, There are different uh, climate, there's different uh, concentration of people, different seedings of the infection. It's, it's very, very difficult to say. But I think the, the question is entirely open. Did what lockdown help? Did it make things worse? Uh, it definitely makes things worse in non-infection related issues because, uh, I mean, our economy is shattered. We have 200,000 million who are newly unemployed. In places like the U.S., they will be uninsured. They will have no access to health care. We know that unemployment increases suicides by 1% per 1% increase in unemployment. We know that heart attacks go up, that strokes go up. If you lose your insurance, you end up to be homeless. You're a victim then of the next coronavirus. So famine, you know, all of these issues, if you balance them against continuing lockdown, really is, is very difficult to say. Sorry. I would never argue to just uh, go for herd immunity and not measure ever anything. We need to protect the vulnerable people, and we know who these are. We know that 42 to 50% of 
57% of deaths in Europe happened in nursing homes. So these places need to be protected with draconian measures. Uh, hospitals, they need to be protected with draconian measures. We need to test all personnel. We need to make sure that they're not infected because then they will spreading infection to very vulnerable individuals, hospitalized patients. So just go for herd immunity blind, that's a disaster. But herd immunity with very careful protection of the hotspots and the susceptible individuals and the vulnerable settings and places may be a solution, especially as we move on. Sheila, can I come back to you perhaps on the, the, the is it worth it point, if you'd just like to answer that briefly? And I think you've also you, you thought about possible ways that the loosening uh, might happen. So if you wanted to segue into that, be my guest. Yes, uh, I, I certainly think that we needed to go into lockdown. If this were a highly transmissible disease that was mild, that, that gave people a mild illness, almost like swine flu, uh, then we would not have done this at all, uh, even if swine flu had had a higher reproductive number than uh, than it did. But it's the lethality associated with this disease. Now, as as both John and, and David have, have mentioned, one of the concerns is that young people are relatively protected and, and young working uh, age people also, those who are under 60, say, and yet they are bearing a considerable amount of the pressure, uh, both economically and in terms of what's happening for their children. So uh, we need as, as early as we can to try to get children uh, back to school and to understand better whether they are carriers of this disease. Um, one of the ways in which we might come out of lockdown would be that you know, since the public has been very good uh, in complying with the, the, the restrictions we have at present, one might imagine that you could say, OK, I'm going to select just five households mm -hmm. with which I will have interaction for the next six months. So a, a relatively low number of households and mine can interact with those. And is there a number that we could, could suggest through the modelling that would allow us to have limited interactions in that sort of way. That sort of recipe for strife with your relatives, isn't it? And what happens when you leave off your <laughs> certain household of relatives and opt to go out with your friends? I'm sure you're going to tell me that wouldn't be your problem, but <laughs> uh, it, does, it does raise some interesting thoughts about how it, it, the, the decisions it would force on us. Well, you certainly raise uh, a very good point that in a two-person household, Perhaps whatever that number of other households is, it has to be divisible by two in order to uh, uh, not have matrimonial strife. <laughs> it's always worth avoiding in the circumstances. Life is tough enough. David, hello. Yeah, I'd like to uh, come back to this idea of, of the fact that the, the, the um, risk profile just varies so massively across the population, um, the, it, particularly age. Um, you know, the risk from, from, uh, from COVID-19 of dying from that um, uh, you know, it doubles for every seven years 
you are older. So it just doubles, 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 doubles. But of course, that's exactly the same as our own background risk anyway. The mortality rates double every seven years that you're older. So age is there just uh, as a measure of frailty. Um, obviously, uh, then for any particular age, it depends on uh, the extra diseases you get. As John said, it picks out the most frail people. It exaggerates any weakness people have got. And so I, I, I think, yeah, a future regime will involve just as John said, and I think the, a just reg regime would involve extremely high um, protection for certain members of the community um, who are in this higher risk level, and not just by a simple age threshold. It's got to, I think it could be much more sophisticated than that. So we've got a proper risk profile. So you are in this high risk category, maybe a medium risk category and a low risk category, which should allow the great mass of younger people and children to have, a, to have considerably more freedoms. And I just hope that a slightly more sophisticated measure like that could be developed because that seems to be the right, I, I think, you know, seems to be the most efficient way to get out of this. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code SQUARED to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
And what about international comparisons? What do we really learn from them, given that the data seems to be so various and diverse between the various kind of reporting that we would get? So if you're looking into a press story that says, oh, Sweden's taking a much more relaxed policy, we should perhaps follow that, or Germany has done very well because it's you know had a particular approach to, to testing, how much do you believe in a, going in any order if anyone sort of declares an interest in this or where do you find we have value locked up in international comparisons and where maybe should we be very careful who'd like to come in first on that 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 will work really well right i'm going to take john then sheila and then back to david and then we'll go to questions john i think we have to be very very cautious about this type of comparisons because they're they're completely uh, observational unadjusted for zillions of factors that are different in different countries Uh, so climate is different temperature is different um, uh, humidity is different uh, uh, population density is different seeding of the virus and the extent thereof is different Uh, uh, how extensive communication how many airports uh, uh, how many elderly people in, in a country, uh, how many susceptible, uh, how many people without insurance, uh, homeless. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult to adjust for all of that. Um, I think if, if you have huge differences, then maybe you can start saying something. Uh, also, maybe you can look at what happens within countries when you change some of the measures. And, and if you see some major uh, response, some you know, major worsening or major improvement, then you can say that, well, that worked or that didn't work. Uh, based on the data that I have seen so far, we, we have to be very cautious, you know, saying lockdown worked and saved so many lives or lockdown didn't work. I, I think this is just not scientific. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's my belief, your belief, uh, you know, David's belief, uh, Sheila's belief. Uh, I, I can look at the same curve and say, ah, it worked or, or it didn't work, depending on, on what we believe. Sheila, international comparisons and where that might lead us as we use data to try to inform policy making. Even for something like COVID deaths, there is a reporting delay until the government gets to know about the death having occurred. And so I think the most important thing when tracking within a country is to unscramble the reporting delay. And there will be reporting delay about every event type, number of hospitalizations, uh, number of positive tests, number of deaths. And I would like to see that much more prominently considered and represented in the way tracking information is presented by politicians to the public. We're just about to go to questions. I'm going to come back to, to David, but just to remind you, if you are sitting there and your finger is twitching, this is the time to send in, in questions. So um, please feel free to do so. David can perhaps take us to that break. And we were really talking about international comparisons. We're hearing a lot there. Often, I mean, country we haven't touched on, it's Germany and succeeding perhaps very well in getting its testing sorted. What does it tell us in terms of data and what then simply becomes ticking a box to say, well, they seemed quite good at this and the other countries seemed less good at it? Yeah, I, I'm very loath to, as John mentioned, there's so many reasons why countries might do, might differ. I much prefer looking, even it's difficult enough looking within a country because testing regimes change and uh, reasons and people don't go to hospitals and all that, you know, just trying to interpret what's happening within a country is incredibly difficult. I suppose, um, you know, the broad shape of the curves, 
I think is quite important. I mean, for example, you know, we're roughly, UK is roughly two weeks behind Italy, and we could see that there that the, you know, while it's quite a steep increase, you get reach a plateau and then rather a slow decline in speed. The asymmetry in that curve is interesting, and we can look at that across different countries. I think that's valuable. The only thing I want to know, I want to ask John about why Greece has come out so well out of this. Well, well, yes, exactly. We'll, we'll let you squidge that one in. Just Maybe somebody might ask. Greece has done. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Greeks are, are the best. It's, it's so simple. <laughs> 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 There's uh, huge differences in Western Europe uh, versus uh, Greece, but also not just Greece. Uh, uh, you know, all the Balkan uh, countries and most of uh, Eastern European countries seem to be doing extremely well. Uh, goodness, you know, all the factors that I mentioned before uh, could be at play. Uh, you know, Greece is a wonderful tourist destination. And I hope that we don't get devastated this year and next because of coronavirus. But very, very few people uh, go to Greece in, in wintertime. And the same applies to most European countries in the, in the East, uh, as compared to Milan, for example, or London or Amsterdam, where everybody is there and uh, arriving from everywhere around the world and everyone is intermingling. Uh, and of course, temperatures are different. Uh, we tend to have much better weather. Um, it, it's, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to say. I mean, we're very happy that uh, things have not gone out. have an advert for Greece as a holiday destination for John, <laughs> but was, what stood out for me there was partly the out-of-season, possibly weather allowing for greater distancing. Um, I think we should go to um, audience questions now. There are about 750 people watching, which is, is very impressive indeed. And thank you so much for, for all taking time to, to join us. To start, this is a nice broad one. Does the modelling suggest that long-term fatalities caused by so-called collateral damage, there are other serious illnesses, diseases, but also what you might call social diseases of, of, of poverty, as well as your cancers and other things that may go untreated or unfound, will outnumber the numbers who die of the infection. That question uh, comes in from Lucy Silver. Who would like to answer that? We'll just talk first about short-term collateral damage, which I think we need to think about that because, um, for example, um, you know, usually at this time of year, 5,000 people a year will die in, the, in England and Wales out of hospital in care homes and, um, and at home. And uh, in the, the week earlier, ending April the 10th, uh, there were 9,000 registers. That's 80% more. And only, so there's 4,000 extra, and only 1,100 of those who actually had COVID on their death certificate. So that's a huge number who are dying extra without COVID on their death certificate. Now, about 1,300 of those were people who I think would normally have died in hospital because the non-COVID deaths have gone down in hospital. People are not going to hospitals. So there's 1,300 fewer deaths that week in hospitals from non-COVID patients than you would have expected. They've, they've, uh, they've not gone in. And we've all heard stories, anecdotal stories, about people who, who um, either were, were not referred by their GP or who said, I'm not going to hospital, and, and, and then died. So there, there is, I think, short-term collateral damage going on. The longer-term collateral damage is extremely difficult to model because, as John said, we've got e economic impact, we've got unemployment, we've got the delays, people are not getting chemotherapy, people are not um, getting elective okay. surgery, and so on. So and I would not want to hesitate a guess as to how big 
that is going to be it would be well, that's, have that's so many... the data question let's uh, flip it over to john then is it a sort of understanding it doesn't sound like there are many variables here and clearly people tend to interpret those variables depending on what their particular views are what their concerns might be and even their their politics will tend to play a role a bit on that but do you believe it's something that is susceptible to data analysis at all john well, much like the data deficit that we had for coronavirus, we have a data deficit for all the collateral damages. And the best that we can hope is try to track it with more data as, uh, uh, you know, the situation evolves. So, you know, we can track indicators of poverty, of unemployment, of loss of insurance, of uh, domestic violence, of suicides, of changes in uh, fatality from other causes of death. We can also extrapolate from what we know of modeling of previous economic crises where we know that the impact can be horrendous, although for some types of deaths, like deaths from uh, car accidents, if you go into lockdown, you will have fewer such deaths. Um, I, it, overall, I think that the collateral damages, even though we cannot be precise about their impact, uh, can be enormous. They, they can be orders of magnitude worse than what coronavirus can do, especially if we continue the current measures long term, I, as I said, lock, lockdown was the right thing to do. And, you know, that's fine. We, we did it for a few weeks. Uh, hopefully, if we reverse uh, gradually, of course, and with data, we can avoid many of these late consequences. But if we continue it or if we have to do it again, you know, for more months in the future, for a couple of years, I, I think even though we have no data because nobody knows the future, th this will be many orders of magnitude potentially worse than what even the worst scenario of coronavirus can do. I'm going to move us along because we've got so many questions. So it's going to be a little bit haiku-like when we, we, we look for your answers just to, to, to get round. There's so many angles to, to this extraordinary uh, saga. Um, one that I thought from Lin Lindsay Roberts, which perhaps uh, Sheila might like to take, is this. The graph shown on the daily briefings, I think you're probably referring to the UK there, but uh, I think that's quite quite uh, widespread elsewhere, show totals by country. They don't take account of different population totals. Wouldn't it be better, more informative, if they were shown per 100,000 head of population, for example? Sounds sensible enough, Sheila, but would that take us in the right direction? I know that... Uh... Well, statistics, would... Medical statistics is one of your fields, so off you go. Well, it would give a reframing, uh, but that's, that's potentially all that it's doing. Uh, and that, that, that is a useful reframing. Uh, but in terms of tracking a, an epidemic, it's the slope within the country that matters. And, and basically, the, the country's population is stable over the, over the period under consideration. What matters more, perhaps, is to look at the deaths by age group and be able to track um, in different age groups because the representation of, of older people uh, is much higher, for example, in Italy than it is in the United Kingdom, say. And another question that is linked, so I think I'm just going to go straight into it, and then please feel, feel free then to, to come back on any of this, from Anne Bird. Aren't the daily death statistics at the UK government news briefing misleading? They're not a toll of the last 24 hours. In actuality, the real indicator of how deadly the pandemic is, is when we're able to accurately analyse uh, excess mortality figures. So uh, we can't I agree now. You, you sound like you agree with that, Sheila, if, I, if I'm Ab reading your body language correctly. Absolutely. The, uh, you know, the, of, the five, um, of the deaths that were reported in today, only 
one in six of them or one in five of them will have occurred yesterday. And another 73% of them occurred in the previous nine days. And, and so we have to take account of the reporting today. And it is extremely irksome that we have extremely good statisticians involved in modelling work in this country, and yet the display that is put up day I, after day after day without proper explanation is reported in deaths. Now the politicians are at least saying every so often, but only a small proportion of them occurred yesterday. Yeah, it's a strong point. And by the way, well, I just had a strong point that I thought might end up being picked up on, on Twitter. And I should remind you, if you're not already, you're very free to tweet us using the hashtag IQ2, hashtag lowercase IQ2. Um, very good to have a tw Twitter debate uh, uh, around this. But that's quite a, a strong criticism. David Spiegelhutter. Yeah, I thought so I'd jump in. It drives me mm -hmm. mental when those graphs get put up every day because there's also a graph you know, that, that is produced by NHS England showing the actual days on which people died. And that shows a much smoother curve with all these reporting artefacts taken out of it. OK, you know, you, you can't, because as Sheila said, there's some delay. So the, maybe the past five days... Is not reliable, five or six days. But behind that, is you get a good picture of what's going on. And then it shows that there was a clear peak in English hospitals two weeks ago on April the 8th. And since then, there's been a steady, rather slow decline. A beautiful, clear picture that speaks for it, or it speaks for itself. Now, there is only hospitals. We don't know yet what's going on in care homes. But the fact that this graph gets put up every day, I stopped watching it. I just can't be bothered. Oh, well, that's 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 you, John. Well, John, you can give us a break from uh, from the British context and and whatever is going up on the on, on that, uh, that British graph, which has got David, I think, quite exercised, and Sheila doesn't like it much either. How do you see that presentation of that kind of statistics more broadly in the US context or beyond? I, I fully agree with uh, with Sheila and David on this. I mean, many of these. Are, are very misleading and very anomalous, in, in, while in fact uh, the, the curves are, are smooth. You know, epidemics uh, don't really create bumps and, uh, and troughs. They're, they're very smooth. <laughs> uh, so if they're not smooth, it means that the data are just completely off. I, I, I just want to point out that, you know, excess deaths is, is a useful concept, but uh, it's, it's a little tricky to attribute uh, excess deaths to a particular cause. Uh, for example, in the U.S. and many other countries, we have noticed that uh, our non-COVID-19 wards are empty. In, in the majority of hospitals, no one is coming to the hospital almost, which means that people with heart attacks, uh, with, with strokes, with, with things where medical care could really help them, and that includes even, uh, even uh, people in, in elder care, uh, they just don't go to the hospital. And, and this means that they have a higher chance of dying you know, at home or, or in elder care, and it's not COVID-19 necessarily. It's, you know, the other causes that are, documented uh, that uh, are getting out of control. So we need to get a, a post-mortem picture on causes of death when that whole wave ends. And some countries are already doing this. Uh, I, I mentioned the Italian data with all these comorbidities in, in the vast majority of deaths. And we'll have a more clear picture then. Yeah. Here's an interesting question from, uh, not to say the other side, but this just takes us in a different direction from Steve Pettit. Clear patterns yet on age, ethnicity, obesity, diabetes, 
or gender, weren't you? Really packed it in there to that question. But uh, we often see a lot of, of uh, news stories trying to delve into particular groups in society. Are we seeing reliably clear patterns yet, Sheila? Yes, definitely. Patterns by age, pattern by gender. The pattern by uh, obesity may depend upon if you've already got severe disease, if you're hospitalized, then BMI matters in terms of whether you uh, survive being in, in intensive care. Uh, so those, and, and uh, there is a link in the United Kingdom with uh, black, Asian and, and minority ethnic groups that may be linked through diabetes um, uh, or there may be different underlying genetic factors. And uh, UK Biobank uh, which is a large uh, study of half a million participants who have given DNA uh, and permission for their medical records uh, to be followed up, that study should be able to try to disentangle whether there are genetic factors underlying the susceptibility or progression of the disease, perhaps including uh, genetic factors for Black Asian people. Uh, a number of questions in this area, so I'm going to, uh, perhaps if you could uh, help me out here, maybe David and John, you might just take different angles uh, on this because we had a number of groups mentioned there. And uh, Brett Moskovitz had a, a similar point on is there an obesity-related risk, which I think Lise Sheila has, has touched on there. But male gender, he, he says, oh, yeah. and I think that's oh, just yeah. the headline that we keep reading. Would someone like to take that? And then perhaps John could yeah. with a different it's angle. Very it's very clear. The data fits the mould beautifully that, that for age, it, the risk doubles every seven years, just like background mortality. Um, just in background mortality, you know, a male and a female at the same age, on average, the male has a 50% greater chance of dying in the next year. But for COVID, it's double the chance. It's, it's double the normal excess risk from being male. So there's a clear interaction Whereas there's no real interaction with age. The age profile for COVID is the same as the age profile for everything else. So, but there is, is with age. Ethnicity is terribly important. And we need to know this. This has got to be intensively studied and will be intensively studied if we're going to bring in a more sophisticated um, strategy for, for protecting people in the future. It's exactly these risk factors we have to understand. So we don't just do some crude, oh, everyone over 70 or everyone under 70 or something like that. David, that's not just because you don't want to do the shopping, is it? Well, exactly. I want to be let out. I'm, I'm 67. <laughs> all 65s have got to stay inside. I think, ah, no. So Rumble. I'm a <laughs> Harsh and possibly even true. In fact. <laughs> I mean, clearly, this is the type of knowledge that we, we already have, and fine-tuning it will make a huge difference, as David and Sheila said, because we can build these models that can give you a very concrete uh, estimate of, of risk. Uh, but based on what we know now, I, I don't want people to, to be panicked that, you know, if they have hypertension, for example, or uh, which is very common, or if they have diabetes, you know, they're going to die. Uh, for, for a young person or a middle-aged person with, uh, um, let's say, just diabetes or, or just hypertension, um, you know, not completely uncontrolled. I mean, I'm not talking about someone who's uh, obese, uh, 200 kilo, kilograms, but uh, th these people, their, their risk of dying during the season uh, from coronavirus is in the same range as the risk of dying in a car accident 
during these days going from home to work and back, uh, or, or even less. Uh, so, you know, we need to, to separate risk levels and inform people, um, this is your risk, um, how do you match that with your expectations, with what is the current policy at a country level, but also what you want to do with your life in terms of mobilizing yourself or just staying inside, avoiding or doing a bit more, again, depending on what is uh, acceptable in, in the country regulations and laws and instructions. There are two questions I think are somewhat linked. Uh, I'll read them both out to you and you can t take the angles that seem to, to fit you best. What's the explanation for Germany's oddly low death rate? Is it to do with the way they record the cause of death more so than the actual numbers from Suzanne uh, Moezi? And then the next from Derek Wellesley just popped up behind it. Does contact tracing really work? I yoke those together in um, in, in the chairs way of doing these things because contact tracing is said to be one of the things that Germany has done you know, particularly well uh, early on. So taking any, either of, of those questions, if you would, back to you, David. Ah, oh, no, give it, someone else can try to answer those. Um, no, I, if, I, if you want to pop, pop it along, I'll come back yeah, to I'll, your I'll, next I'll, one. I'll, I'll, time sure. time runs run short. There's loads of questions. Of very generous of you. Let's take Sheila then, John. Thank you. Uh, we have not been terrifically good at contact tracing for a variety of diseases in the United Kingdom. And so as we go into the next phase, we're being, you know, the UK is trying to get itself organized and actually have a, a mobilized team to do the contact tracing, specifically trained to do that. And, and if one is going down this line, you have to be extremely thorough in um, particularly because in this disease, the concern is that you're actually shedding virus a couple of days before you're actually symptomatic. And so you have to be contacting, focused in the way you do your contact tracing on those persons who, whom the, the, uh, the, the newly positive uh, interacted with in the past two or three days, including since, uh, in, uh, and, and also since they became symptomatic. So it's a difficult word on the idea that the way that may be reporting its deaths is different enough to, to account for a perceived better performance overall. What, what is your feeling on that? Sorry, Anne, I didn't understand. I think that. I've lost the track of that question. That Germany may have recorded its deaths in a different way or how, to what extent COVID is responsible for deaths. Anyone? No one? If not, we'll move on from it. It's no, a I, yeah, no. view on that. David, David had a thought and then... Oh, I, thought, I, 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 I suspected this, but I, I'm, I don't think there's evidence for the case because I don't think they, Germany has shown um, a, a spike in excess mortality, which you right. would have expected. It's not been uh, coding them. Gosh. Right, sorry, back to you, John, uh, on, on the two questions. That's a very important point. Contact tracing is, uh, is really a, uh, excellent when you can do it very early on, uh, when you're uh, controlling the onset of the epidemic wave and just uh, suppressing it. And this is pretty much what happened in Taiwan, in Singapore, to a good extent in, in South Korea. I think G Germany also had more aggressive testing compared to other countries early on. Uh, so their, their curve did not increase so rapidly, uh, they, they had more control of the slope of increase probably because of their more extensive testing. Of course, they have a competent healthcare system. Their hospitals never crash. They could offer good care. 
So all of these factors probably would uh, work into, into play. In terms of contact tracing in environments where you have very large number of people being infected, like uh, New York, uh, where these data just came out with more than 20% of the population already having antibodies, which, which means that you know more than 20% were infected like two weeks ago. Uh, it, it may be 30% now or, or higher. Uh, the contacts of the 30% of the population is almost the other 70%. You, you know, if you have 30% of the population to, to get their contacts, uh, you, you just need to check everyone. <laughs> it's uh, it's extremely difficult to, to really uh, do that. So uh, mm. I think it doesn't have a strong role in that setting. When the epidemic wave starts going down and eventually um, becomes quiet and you'd want to avoid a new spike, I think that there you have a much better role for contact tracing again because you, you don't want to have a new wave spiking. So new cases need to be thoroughly examined and see who they have been in contact with. We, we've talked a lot about Britain, America, a bit about continental Europe. We haven't touched much on beyond. So Nisha Singh says, how do you think a country like India should proceed? Large numbers of people with comorbidities, but in the jargon, but also a large young working population that it uh, desperately needs, obviously, for uh, to sustain itself economically. Uh, thank you, Nisha. Um, who would like to, to answer that? David? Yeah, I, I'm deeply concerned about countries with a huge informal economy adopting Western-style lockdown measures. Um, I've heard of you know, people I know in Uganda and in India, you know, really great suffering being caused by the measures which are arbitrarily announced by you know authoritarian governments and which can cause you know a, a huge amount of damage to people's lives when when where people actually you know you have to earn the money each day to to have a meal in the evening and there's so many people like that in these informal economies and, and just locking down as we can we which we can sustain even our societies are, will be deeply affected by this but I I, I um I'm very um. Uh, yeah, I really doubt whether this is the appropriate action in countries with, with big informal yeah. economies. John, we wanted a word. I, I fully agree with uh, with David. Uh, I think that lockdown in these countries can really cause uh, their their complete demise. Uh, and uh, if you look at the population structure for India, yeah. the proportion of people in the population who are above eighty or eighty five is like one tenth yeah. of uh, what is in Italy or or UK or or other. European countries. So we have very few uh, people in that very high tire of susceptibility. Uh, you know, we have lots of people in nursing homes. I, I, I don't know how many people are in nursing homes in India, but I, I believe there must be very, very, very few. Um, so I, I think a different recipe is clearly indicated and that draconian lockdown in a country that is barely struggling to make ends meet and, uh, you know, is, is uh, potentially susceptible to, to famine and, and uh, extreme poverty and uh, complete disruption, uh, I, I think that that could be a, the recipe for disaster. Uh, a question that just come in, uh, Marianne Vorbach, 
says a scientist in the US recently said there, there will be a second wave of the virus, which could be worse because it would coincide with the flu season. Isn't it possible, however, she says, this won't be the case because those who would be susceptible to flu would have been victims of the virus now. There's quite a lot packed in there. Um, but I suppose the, the underlying sort of worry that has just been out there, and I don't know how much the data helps us with this, Sheila, is the second wave uh, worry. What do you make of it? Well, there is a second wave worry, but of course, many of the people that we are secluding just now are precisely those who would get the seasonal flu vaccine. Uh, we have a vaccine each year. It performs more or less well uh, for seasonal flu. And people with vulnerabilities and so on receive that vaccine first. So um, I don't think the vac you know, that they are going to be taken out by seasonal flu, as it were, um, because they're protected against that. And so they're still vulnerable to coronavirus un unless or until we get a vaccine. For that. Any other thoughts on second wave? John? I think that it's very risky to make any predictions on the second wave, whether it will come, how high the peak will be. Um, it, it's completely speculative. Of course, mathematical models uh, uh, expect that to happen. Actually, they expect that to happen in worse terms in uh, countries that were more successful, uh, you know, paradoxically, in, in mm -hmm. the first wave, because we have a higher number of susceptible individuals, uh, which is one argument actually against prolonged lock lockdown, if anything. But, but we, really, we really don't know. I mean, we, we cannot even guess the spike of the, the influenza uh, spike, uh, you know, how, how high it will be like next season or two years from now or three years from now. Each year we get a spike, but, but you know, we have a very, very rough understanding of uh, why this year it will be worse or it may be better. Uh, the difference this time for coronavirus is that we do have some immunity in the population, different levels at different countries. We do have better tools. We can track prevalence. We can track incidents. We are knowledgeable about how that virus manifests. We can protect our nursing homes. We can protect our hospitals in better ways. We can also have contact tracing early on if we see that there's cases that arise. So, so I'm, I'm optimistic that we will do better but don't take me on record that, uh, oh, he knew everything and he was so wrong. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. You only said it in front of about 750 people in the whole of Twitter. I know, I know. Um, yeah, I, I, it could have so been, we're uh, friends here. Very good questions. I'm talking over your apologies. Um, a good question, which I think will take us uh, towards the end of our hour together. So I'd encourage you all to answer it and maybe just wrap in any concluding thoughts and, and gems that you feel that you'd like us to, to take, a, take away in the last few minutes. It's from Eva Pascoe. Epidemiologists say when you've seen one pandemic, then you've seen one pandemic. There are no patterns. So how can data help? David, what have we all just been talking about for the last hour? And Eva's quote is a, a good challenge to the whole kind of underlying kind of precept of what, of what we discussed. Well, I, it makes data even more important because it means, you know, from what she's saying, that every pandemic you have to start from scratch almost, and which we've had to do to some extent. Unfortunately, I think in the UK, we really did seem to have to start from scratch in spite of all our plans for pandemic flu that had been, that had been laid down. And so um, it, that's why the data is so absolutely essential, because we've got to learn so rapidly about each new situation. 
and and that's why you know we 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 need to know what's going on in the population we need the surveillance surveys we need to um, have very rapid access to health outcomes and to have that shared and publicized and be transparent and open and you know while uh, you know th this has been the most data rich pandemic you know you can think of when you think of all the numbers bandied around and the millions of people on twitter fitting their curves and things like that but um it, it's still it still is not there's not enough data we, we haven't got enough good quality data being shared and being available to 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 people and 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 we're still not being told all the information we could be being told so it makes the fact that we have to start again each time makes data even more important. John, what do you reckon? Do we learn anything that we really, you know, need to know in a data sense from past pandemics, or are you of sort of David's drift of of, of mind that we'd have to just keep we'd be thinking about it almost as if we're starting from the ground up in data terms? I, I think that uh, good data is always useful. They can be helpful in the future. Uh, of course, uh, every new season is a different season, but uh, uh, we can use lots of the information that we have from the current wave uh, to make some more sound decisions. We can we can move more quickly to to uh, you know see that we have new cases and track uh, uh, people who have been exposed. Uh, we can prepare our hospitals much better. We can. Uh, uh, know that it's very important very early on to, to get some incident studies. I, I argue that we need to see the activity of the epidemic in, in a reliable way, not, not just wait for the sick people who come to us and want to be tested. This is very, very unreliable. So we can learn from our errors, from our mistakes that were unavoidable uh, to a large extent, and I, I think we can be better prepared. And, and to do that, we need data. Uh, that's uh, data, data, data. <laughs> the most you. The most fundamental data are prompt record registration of deaths. And so 10 years ago, the Royal Statistical Society called for legislation to end the late registration of deaths in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. We've been caught out by this pandemic. It hasn't happened yet. And the second thing, an advantage that we have that we didn't have in swine flu is that in Scotland, uh, as in Scandinavian countries, there is a community health index incorporated into which is the year, uh, the birth, the, the year of birth, and the sex of the individual. And through record linkage, they'll be able to link the swab test results with subsequent hospitalizations and mortality. And this will give us very powerful information. So I hope that when we come out of this, we'll have a similar sort of health index number for England and Wales. Well, listen, thank you very much. I must thank uh, my, my speakers for taking on a fascinating and very important uh, tour of coronavirus and data and the questions that flow from it. I've certainly learned a lot from the event and, and we hope that you have too, uh, our, our audience. So pleased that so many of you took time to join us from wherever you're locked down today. And we really are wishing you well. And to Intelligence Squared for hosting us and for getting all those tech gremlins that make my life such a misery day to day so smoothly to, to work together and to communicate with all of us and to keep us all together at a time when that is particularly important to keep conversation flowing as well as information.